tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, hello. For another hour of obscurity masquerading as scholarship? Well, we'll try. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Oh, right there. All right. Okay. Moving along here. Um, this is something I've said recently, but that won't stop me from saying it again. <clears throat> the first reading from Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, the 15th verse and following about the law. By the way, the book Deuteronomy is, Deutero means second, and nomos means law. This is a, a kind of repetition of the law, reformulation of the, 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 the law which Moses received on Sinai. And so it was called the second law. I forget what the word is in Hebrew. Interestingly, Hebrew uh, takes the first uh, words of the text as the name of the Bible. We take... Uh, Greek words that, for instance, we call Genesis. Genesis is about how things happened. Deuteronomy, the second, uh, the second law, or a restatement of the law. Um, in Hebrew, for instance, uh, the opening line of of uh, Book of Genesis is Bereshit bara Elohim Haratz, the Lord in the beginning. So the book is called Bereshit. Uh, the the um, uh, the book of Numbers, for instance, in Hebrew is Bamidbar, in the desert. But those are the first lines of the of the book. So I just think that's interesting, kind of unimportant, but interesting. Well, this is the second law, and uh, it's a restatement of the law. And essentially, you read the the um, uh, the text, and it says. Uh, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I enjoin on you today, this is Moses speaking, loving him, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, you will live and grow numerous. Uh, the, for that will mean life for you, a long life, for you to live on the land that the Lord swore he would give you, give to your fathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's kind of arbitrary. you know. And then that, that thing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that was just mean. We Americans think of law as arbitrary. 
the laws of there are there are laws in the the Torah, <clears throat> the Hebrew the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which in fact are in a sense arbitrary. I, I tell you all the time about the chukim, the the commandments that make no sense. You shouldn't uh, have wool and cotton in the same garment. Why? It was just there to keep Israel separate from the nations around it. That's at least my theory. Well, they were arbitrary. And thus, when the Messiah came, we believed they were abrogated. Well, we couldn't eat pork in the Old Testament. Now we can eat pork. So we couldn't commit adultery in the Old Testament. Why can't we commit adultery now? Because there are some commandments that are not arbitrary because they flow from the nature of God. They define the nature of reality. And I tell you this all the time. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is faithfulness. Thou shalt not steal. God is is generosity uh, and grace um, and so on. Uh, I can say uh, also that these commandments define the best of humanity. You don't want to be stolen from? Don't steal. You don't want to be cheated on? Don't cheat. You don't want to be lied and gossiped about? Don't lie and gossip. That's that's the definition of... of uh, I think of, of of true civilization that I see in another person that they are no different than I. They wish to be happy, to live good lives, to have their children be safe, to live in some prosperity and and uh, and security. That a person may come from the opposite end of the earth, but not be really different than I am in its essential nature. So the commandments are not arbitrary. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary. They are about the nature of God and the nature of humanity, and these things are fixed by the creation. And in in the law of Moses, you have amplifications of the Ten Commandments, you have liturgical laws, and you have these chukim, these these arbitrary laws that God gave, that I believe God gave, so that the people of Israel would remain, remain pure of the barbaric customs of the nations around them. So that's the law. And so God is not being—how come God won't let us do that? You know, when we're little kids, we know that when we go up to bed, that's when our parents roll up the rug and get out the booze and have a wonderful time. That's when the party starts. No, they sit there calming down after having dealt with us as little kids for a day or two or for all day, and they they, they go to bed as soon as they can, usually, after, after the kids do. But when we're children, we think, well— Mom and Dad just are saying, don't touch the hot stove because they don't want me to have any fun. <laughs> no, they want you to live. So we're that way with God. We think these things are arbitrary. They're not arbitrary. They're they're part of the divine nature, and they are the fullness of human nature. So that's why the Lord says, if you obey them, you will have life. If you disobey them, they are they will they will deal death. It's I always say it's like the the, the yucky face we put on the bleach to keep the kids from drinking it. That's the law. And <clears throat> God made that promise. So that said, let us now move on to, um, again, a sermon you have heard uh, <clears throat> many times before, I'm sure, if you listen to my show. This is Luke, the ninth chapter, the 22nd verse. Uh, and uh, I, I also want to go to... Uh, uh, the psalm response, because well, let me do the psalm response first, and and then I'll end with the, the uh, the retread sermon here. Hold on, let me pull this up. The kingdom, when you read the kingdom of God is at hand again, uh, 
You know, I, I'm sorry that I I sound like a broken axe, uh, broken wreck because I keep recycling these things. But you know, the more I repeat things, the more I learn them, and I think this is a good one to learn. Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we think the the kingdom of heaven, we think, well, that's when Christ comes again. Uh, <laughs> it's it's it's. You know, it's going to be great. It's We're all going to have mansions on the street of gold, and we'll get to say neener, neener to our enemies and that sort of thing. No, 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 no. Again, forgive me. I say this constantly because it's taken me years to really understand it. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. <laughs> oh, that's from the movie Groundhog Day, which is most appropriate in February. I always say February is the longest month of the year. It starts somewhere in January and moves right through till April, but... At least where I am. Well, let's get back to this word basilea means not what we think of by kingdom. It means God's royal nature. Basilea is kingliness. A basileus is a king and basilea is the state of kingship. It's God's royal nature. And Jesus works so hard. Maybe that's why I say it so much because Jesus talked about it so much. Jesus worked so hard to teach us that God's Kingship is not like the kingship of the world. He is the shepherd king, the servant. He he is is the slave of all. That's what God is like. And ultimately, you know, again, forgive me. The cross is the kingdom of God. When you see uh, uh, Jesus on the cross, he's revealing the nature of God. Jesus said at the Last Supper, "I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom." And when did he next drink the fruit of the vine? When they put the, the sponge full of cheap, uh, cheap wine, vinegar wine, which was from the grape. They put it up to his lips and had him drink from the hyssop. The drink was called Posca. It was just a kind of uh, Gatorade made of cheap wine and, and, and bad water that, that the Roman soldiers drank. But it was fruit of the vine. So Jesus drank the fruit of the vine on the cross. Was he lying? Was he mistaken? Did he forget he wasn't going to do that? No, that's he drank the fruit of the vine on the cross because the cross is the kingdom. That's what God is like. And, well, that godly nature, that true nature of God, that's Basilea ton uranon. When, when, when Matthew wants to say God, he says heaven. It's a, it's a euphemism. It's a circumlocation. He's talking around it because Jews do not like to talk about God the fra- by name. They have such reverence for the name of God. Luke was a Gentile. He had no problem saying Theos, God. But Matthew, out of respect, when he talked about God, he, he said heaven. So the, the, the nature, the royal nature of God, and then it's a verb. It is not an adjective. It means has drawn near. The, he's, Jesus is saying repent. Okay, <laughs> this is going to go long, and I really do want to talk about the other reading, but... Metanoia, it means repent, and this is in the present tense. Again, I've told you at least a thousand—I'm not yelling at you, be patient. (laughs) I told you a thousand times that the word—that there are two forms of an imperative, a command form in Greek. There's one that says, do it, and then there's one that says, do it and keep doing it till I tell you to stop. This is the one, do it and keep doing it till I tell you to stop. You can't finish repentance. It's a lifelong journey. And what metanoia really means is have a new understanding. St. Paul talks about it in Philippians, the second chapter. Have that mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. 
Learn to think like God. Learn to define things like God. Learn to see the world like God sees it. Learn to see your neighbor, even if you don't like him, the way God sees him. I'm always telling God, if you knew this person like I knew him, you wouldn't like him. And he says, you're wrong. I love them. And they are worth the price of the blood of my son on the cross. Think about that. Every human being born, even the ones you don't particularly like, God considers worth the ultimate price, the blood of his son on the cross. So that's what metanoia is. Let God change your mind. Let God change your mind about the most basic things, what love is, what truth is, and what the kingdom is, what his nature is. You know, we picture God with lots of trumpets and rays of light and and glitz. He sees the cross. So this royal nature has drawn near. Where Christ was, there was the royal nature. The, the climactic moment in human history, the crucifixion, wasn't the resurrection. It was the crucifixion. You read that in the Gospel of John. Now is the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is talking about the cross. Look close. So this idea of the kingdom of God has drawn near. It isn't far away. Jesus says elsewhere, the kingdom of God is within you, or it can be translated among you. That's what this verse is about. Now, having said that and gotten that off my chest, let us go to the the gospel. Um, uh, um, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He says, The Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. He's saying Jesus is telling the, the difficult truth to his disciples. And Peter, in another version of this, says, oh, don't say that, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You think not like God does, but like men do. Allow God to change your mind. And he's saying that to Peter. you got to repent. you got to let me change your mind about what real glory is. Then he said to all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. What does that mean? How do you deny yourself? You say, no. I want to go there. No. I want to do this. No. The same way you deny a two-year-old, that's how you deny yourself. You say no. Take up his cross and follow me. This, again, forgive me, this is an old sermon. You may have heard me say it before, but I was saying Mass one day in a very poor church that not only didn't have screens on the windows, it did not have windows on the windows. And the fruit flies are die-bombing the chalice. And I said to the Lord, Lord, couldn't you convince the fruit flies of this great miracle for one moment. I believe it's your body and blood, but the fruit flies don't seem to be realizing this. And the little voice inside, the, the still small voice, which sometimes is the Lord or is just sometimes your imagination, you got to be careful with it. But the still small voice said clearly to me, with my hands nailed to the wood of the cross, I was a feast for the flies. I could almost not go on with the mass. To think that the hand that I believe set the stars to spinning could not raise itself to swipe the flies from his face. The all-powerful became powerless for love of us. You say, how come if God loves me and how come God is all-powerful, he doesn't do this? The all-powerful becomes powerless for love of us. And sometimes we're powerless. That's when we love Love is not about power. Love is <laughs> saying, uh, the, you know, when, when, you, when you love someone, they have power over you. They really do. They, they have a right to your efforts and your, your energies. Uh, to love, I always tell you, is to will the good of another. Well, if you are loving someone, you become the servant of that person. 
not doing necessarily what they want, but what is for their good. The all-powerful became powerless for love of you and me. That's the heart of the cross. That's the nature of God. That's the kingdom. So I, I think this is, this is, you know, this let, let God redefine the most basic categories of your life. Let him tell you the truth, uh, as he did to the disciples. That, that, you know, why is there suffering in the world? I got a letter. We'll talk about that later. But why is there suffering in the world? In this sad and sinful world, suffering is the price of love. And Jesus showed us that on the cross. There are times when you are powerless. You, you know, a loved one lays in a hospital bed with tubes, tubes coming out of them, or you're laying in the hospital bed, and you can do nothing about it. Well, God, why don't you do something about this? He says, I am. I'm here with you. My, my, I love you. Well, can't you fix it? Yeah, I can, but I want you to trust me. I don't want to trust you. I want to be better. <laughs> uh, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff when you're in good health. Uh, thank God at the moment I am. But it's when we are in great pain and great powerlessness that we're invited to say, Jesus, I trust in you. And I believe that you love me. Ours is not an easy religion. People want to make it into an easy religion. You know, let's take away one or two or three of the commandments, that sort of thing. No, we're entering into the nature of God, and we have to enter into the fullness of his commandments because they are a gift to us. They teach us what he's really like. Above all, the cross teaches us the nature of Christ. Enough. Let's take a break. We'll come back with letters, and uh, uh, you can call in and ask any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, the church, and, of course, the big book on the coffee table. Ooh, Mexican music, nice stuff. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Battling addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at relevantradio.com slash Gregory. That's relevantradio.com slash Gregory. Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You gotta help me make a stand. You just got to see me through another day. My body's That's so true. Jesus, just see me through another day. A day at a time, sweet Jesus, as another song says. That said, let us go now to letters. All right, let me move this and then move that and find out where I have put my mouse, which is more probably called a cursor. And I that's not that's with an O, not an E. So moving along, uh, let's see. Here is a letter. Oh, bother. Okay, now this is, oh, bother, that's true. This is a letter I don't know that I can answer. Uh, the covenants. The question is, there are six covenants in this scripture. I maintain there are seven. And I will explain them. And I have said that you can't make covenant with God without blood sacrifice. We see the covenant of Noah. This was the second covenant. Uh, Noah sacrificed clean animals. Abraham uh, um, made covenant with God by sacrifice. The blood of circumcision was part of the Mosaic, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant... Uh, 
the blood of bulls was sprinkled on the people. The covenant, uh, the Davidic covenant on Mount Moriah uh, was, was uh, uh, the, sanctified with, with blood. You know, David offered blood sacrifice when he offered, um, when he brought the ark into Jerusalem. And, of course, the covenant made uh, at the Last Supper in Golgotha, which were, you know, when you think of the ways Jews look at the, the day, 24 hours, the Last Supper and the crucifixion were on the same day. We think of them on Thursday and Friday, but Friday started at sundown, and so did the Passover suppers. So Jesus, uh, in one day, gave us his body and blood in the sacrament of the Eucharist, and he shed his blood on Calvary. That's within the same 24-hour period, in the one day, which was Friday. Again, we think of Holy Thursday. It was really Holy Friday evening, Good Friday evening. Uh, what do you mean it was Good Friday evening? Yeah, that that before sundown, Jesus was in the tomb. Uh, that's how Jews noted time, evening and morning. The day started around just about, oh, 45 minutes after sundown. All right, so... Uh, um, I would maintain there's a seventh covenant in the scriptures that is um, uh, the the uh, uh, we read about in the book of Revelation the 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 covenant the marriage ceremony of the Lamb and of course uh, um, uh, the book of Revelation Apocalypse talks about being washed in the blood of the Lamb but the question is where was the blood involved in the covenant of Adam with Adam and Eve. I don't know that I can answer that. It may be that because it was it was before the fall that blood was not necessary to to uh, uh, to seal a covenant. That might be the the, the thing or uh, when they fell, that God made covenant with them in the blood of childbirth. I mean, if, if, you, if you think of, you know, when did God make covenant with Adam and Eve? Was it a covenant before the fall or after the fall? And I would think it's after the fall that, that there were, um, you know, I have to look more closely, but I'm thinking it may even be the blood of childbirth. That is the sealing of the covenant with Adam and Eve. So I just wanted you, this is uh, uh, from Anne from Chicago who's writing this. I just wanted you to know, Anne, I'm thinking about it. I'm working on it. So I want you to know that uh, I didn't, that's a, a really, really good question. All right, let's see here. Okay. Uh, you know, this is a really interesting question. This is Jan from Toledo, Ohio. And it's one of our news stations. Hello, Toledo at AM 1520 and 94.1 FM. How can evil exist if God is all love? Well, evil exists for the sake of freedom, but in a sense, evil doesn't exist. Evil is a lack of something, just as darkness doesn't exist. What do you mean darkness doesn't exist? I turn off the lights in my room and it's dark. No, darkness doesn't exist on its own. It's an absence of light. And in the same way that darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of good. If you think of it that way, it makes a whole lot more sense. So I hope that helps answering your question, uh, uh, Jan from Toledo. Okay, let's see here. Now, um, this is kind of interesting. Hail Mary at Mass. Uh, this is from Adele. And uh, she's in Philadelphia. Hello, Philadelphia. Um, 
after Mass, we say prayers to the Virgin Mother. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God, and St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. During Sunday Mass, will the Catholic Church add the Hail Mary in a prayer to St. Joseph? We already have uh, a mention uh, of St. Joseph in the canon. Uh, and when we list the saints, St. Joseph, her her most her blessed spouse, Saint, her, uh, her spouse, blessed uh, Joseph, but no, I don't think I don't think we will add the Hail Mary to the Mass, and I don't think it's appropriate that that um, people think of, especially since uh, liturgical reform. Uh, you know, people talk about the Mass of Vatican II. We're not. We don't have the Mass of Vatican II. We have the Mass of the liturgical movement. Uh, the, the Second Vatican Council. If you look at what the Father said. Oh, a voice in my head. What's the name of the document about the liturgy? Sacrosanctum, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Concilium. That's the document. If you read Sacrosanctum Concilium, the very first document of the Vatican Council, the Mass that we have now resembles the Mass of Vatican, the Second Vatican Council very minimally. What we have now is the Mass of the liturgical movement, especially the, the, uh, the um, American liturgical movement, which was... Uh, really fostered by Archbishop uh, Rembert Weekland. He was one of the big patrons of the liturgical movement um, in this country. Uh, so uh, the, the, the idea that we would add these things to the liturgy, the liturgy is not the catch-all. It always amazed me that people wanted me to come and say Mass for the darndest things. Father, we put new sod in the playground at the, at the, at the preschool. Can you come and say a Mass for it? You know, that the, the Mass just became the only trick in the bag when in, in the 60s and 70s. I will never forget the first home Mass I went to, which was in the dining room of my parents' home. My parents were devout, and my mother taught at the school, and I had sisters who at the time were in the convent. And uh, um, lo and behold, uh, our dining room was crammed. We had a choir of nuns and a guitar and all the neighbors. We were packed in there, and I thought— and right next to us is this really nice big church <laughs> with an actual choir loft. But no, we had to have, this was the early church. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, that, that that was an assumption we had, that we were going back to the early church. No, we were not. Uh, the early church, they were Jews, and Jews are very liturgical people and rather formal about worship. So, you know, we, we just crammed everything. It was the only thing we did was the new Mass. And we forgot about things like 40 hours devotion and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and benediction and and uh, uh, rosary devotions and novenas and litanies. We forgot about all that. Now those have come back in a big way. And, you know, to add something to the Mass just because we got to get it in there, I don't think that's appropriate. You know, the, the, the Mass, we, we, we honor the Blessed Mother in very ancient liturgical words in the Mass. And... We sh to to keep adding things to the mass. That was one of the the parts of the authentic liturgical reform under Pius the Twelfth. You wanted to maintain the dignity and simplicity of the Roman liturgy. You know, I go into a church and somebody brings a nice uh, a nice. Whenever they did this for me, they would bring a lovely picture of the Sacred Heart and put it over on that altar, and someone else would bring a statue of Saint Joseph, put it on that. Pretty soon, the church is full of all of these these kind of tasteless. Um, excessive ornaments that people put in just because, because well, they like that was their devotion and they were big on it, so that it should be in the church. 
And priests don't dare take them out because they don't want to offend people. I was much better at offending people. I was a little more comfortable with it. And, you know, someone put a statue somewhere and that they hadn't mentioned, asked me as pastor, I would, that was my statue. I took it and put it somewhere else, like in the alley. I mean, that sounds horrible, Father. No, that that when I think that that uh, I need to add this devotion and I don't do it with the the consensus of a community you know i'm imposing something on other people it's a we don't have the concept i'm probably irritating a lot of people right now but nah it's it's what i do uh you know we we don't have the right to make a private devotion into part of what seems to be the deposit of faith mass is very clearly the deposit of faith and changes in the mass should be done very very carefully and with the authority of the church and uh, I think that uh, that's a very important thing, that, that just because it's a good thing. Well, it is a good thing. That's a beautiful statue. And devotion to St. Joseph, wonderful thing. Devotion to the divine uh, mercy. I think the divine mercy is, is glorious. But we need to understand the history of liturgy, the history of the church, and understand how these things happen organically. You know, I, I'm real big on the tabernacle being in the middle of the church. I think it is very important. However, there are priests who I respect greatly who really, with mass turned toward the people, they don't like their back facing the tabernacle. That's a legitimate reason. And I would just like to tell you that up until about 1200 A.D., the Eucharist was reserved on the side of the church. Well, that means we should all go back to reserving it on the side of the church. No. When the Eucharist was being... De-emphasized by the coming of the Reformation, which really has roots in the 1300s, that the Lord decided to emphasize the Eucharist by the placement of the tabernacle. And the church did this slowly and reasonably. So, you know, just because you think that we should do this in the liturgy doesn't mean we should do it. Um, uh, that may sound hard to people, but the liturgy belongs you know, the word liturgy means the work of the people. Well, we're the people, and we should be able to say, no, you're not the people. You're part of the people. The people of God go to for, <laughs> go to about 1,000 B.C. or more uh, until the coming of the Lord. The liturgy is the property of the whole people of God, and it's the work. Liturgy really means the duty of the people, not the work of the people. In other words, it's not mine. It's something I have to do. It means the duty of the people. So uh, this is the duty of a community of people that is universal in space and in time. So I don't have the right to conform this, this which is the property of God and the property of the bride of Christ throughout history. I don't have the right to tailor make it to the fashion of my age. I have to do it considerately and reasonably and with authority given by God. So you don't mess with the liturgy, and we do a lot of messing with the liturgy. You know, oh, this is just, uh, oh, well, we're, I'm gossiping. Lord, it's Lent. <laughs> I've been to confession, and we'll have to go again. But I won't use any names. I have a friend who is a priest, and we are friends. He's very progressive, <laughs> but we're good friends. And uh, I do respect so much of what he's, he's done. But he has the habit of writing his own canon and and um uh, he has a church that's full of people but 
he writes his own canon. And I saw a video of one of the masses he did, and I realized he was talking about God. At Mass, we don't talk about God. We talk to God. And I thought, I wonder if Mass is even valid when it isn't a prayer addressed in the person of Christ to the Father. So he's talking about God. His Mass is an hour-and-a-half-long sermon. Lovely. I mean, some of the things he, he wrote were just beautiful. But he wasn't talking to God. He Are was talking to the congregation. So, you know... The liturgy is not, it doesn't belong to me as a priest. It doesn't even belong individually to a bishop, though bishops are specially charged with guarding the liturgy. It is the work of the entire people of God, the church universal throughout space and time. And to monkey with it is, we do so at our own peril. There's something called the lex orandi lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of believing. Uh, the way you pray really says a lot about what you believe. And this kind of roll your own smoke, your own liturgy, as I always call it, is, I think, a very dangerous thing. I don't know. That's just me. All right. Enough is enough. Let's go to a break. I've gotten that off my chest. Oh, 888 Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash UDallas. Well, I'm going to tag along with Jesus. I'm going to keep a tagging along. Well, if I keep a telling the story... I don't know. This is a little too personal for this show. I'll, I'll try to. A woman named Patricia just called in and asked if I was such and such and where I grew up, and I am that. And I'm wondering if she and her brother Scott, uh, if she and her brother Scott, grew up on Stone Avenue. That would be. That would be. If so, Patricia. Do call back. I would love to, at any rate. Now, that's not what we're about. I should talk about the gospel instead of my friends when I was four. Moving along. <laughs> Let's go to uh, the word of the day. Oh, what did I just... Oh, the word of the day, it'll be brief. But it was interesting in the reading, again, my, <laughs> my cursed mouse. I mean, my cursor that is sometimes called a mouse. There it is. Uh, in the first reading, we hear... Uh, that uh, um, for to obey God's to heed God's voice that will mean life for you a long life uh, for you to live on the land that the Lord swore He would give your fathers Abraham Isaac and Jacob and just for the fun of it again I kind of knew what it was going to be I I looked up uh, the word um, for swear in Hebrew and it is it is Shabbat which is also the word for sem- I'm telling you this all the time that. Shavah can mean seven, or it, you know, Hebrew, uh, most Semitic languages are built on three consonants, and the meaning is derived from a change in vowels. Uh, for instance, uh, what's, a, what's a good example? Um, well, Shavah, it's shin, which is pronounced sh, and b, b, which is bet, and ayin, Shavah. Three consonants, and you put in different vowels and sometimes prefixes and suffixes that give it meaning. But Almost all Semitic words, that's Arabic and, and Hebrew and Aramaic and a few others, 
the every word is essentially three consonants. And the word Shabbat also means seven. So you didn't say in Hebrew, I I um I swear I'm telling the truth. You would say, I seven you, I'm telling the truth. Very uh, uh, vocabulary poor language. So when you see seven in the Bible, it's usually about a covenant oath. The seven days of creation, which really were six, but we talk about the seven days and God resting on the seventh. That's That means the entire creation is God's oath of love uh, that... that uh, um, that he loves us and created us for himself. Uh, we have seven sacraments, and the word sacrament itself in Latin means oath to the death. A sacrament is an outward sign established by Christ to give grace, but the word sacrament in Latin mean the, meant the most solemn oath, an oath, a lover's oath, or an oath uh, to your to your king or emperor. So they thought that was the perfect word to talk about the seven sacraments. So in a sense, we have the seven solemn oaths. What do you mean seven solemn oaths? Confession is an oath? Yeah. You you have a firm purpose of amendment. Baptism is an oath? Yes. And that's why you got to be prepared for it. And you don't, you don't baptize a kid who is not going to have any chance of living up to his part of that covenant. So this is an important thing. Uh, when God swears an oath, he means it. And we should too. And we should know what oaths we're swearing. All right, let's go to phones. Hello, Ghostbusters. Okay. My, my. Oh, good grief. Let's go to Joe from Galena, Illinois. Hi, uh, Father Simon. Yeah. Uh, I love your show. And I have a, a question. I'm not sure. Uh, um, this is like a question, I guess, for God. I don't know whether you could. Well, uh, no. remember what I don't know, I can always make up. But go on. Okay. Um, so... You were mentioning about, you know, dietary laws about, you know, mm-hmm. pork and stuff. Uh, yes. Uh, not eating pork. Uh, would would have salvation history, as it played out, been any different? Would, would it happen, um, would it ha- have happened at all uh, if, um, it were, if the Jews, I guess, they were the first to ban it? Had never, you know, if it if they had never pronounced it or enforced it as uh, being against God's law, eating pork, you mean? Yes, that's a good example. Yeah, I mean, it, I would have would have been a salvation like, history would have been hugely different. It would have been hugely different had pork not been prohibited, because you see, pork was a very popular sacrificial animal for for pagan religions. Because you know, to to buy a to to kill an ox or uh, an animal that size would be like to take a sledgehammer to a big piece of farm equipment. It would have been you know very expensive. You didn't eat a lot of meat, and the offering of the poor was turtle doves. But a pig, you know, pigs, there's a lot of pigs around. And, you know, it seems especially the Greek gods really enjoyed pork. That would have meant you know, when you when you offered a sacrifice, you some of the meat went to the temple and the, and the pagan priests sold it. And uh, even in the in the temple in Jerusalem, some of the in certain offerings, some of the meat, much of the meat went to the priests for their maintenance. Well, butcher shops and restaurants, believe it or not, in the ancient world were attached to temples. And that's where you ate meat when someone had a sacrifice and you would go to the, be invited to a banquet. Essentially, you would, someone said, we are sacrificing to the goddess Athena. 
join us in our sacrifice. And um, if the prohibition against certain animals had not been in place, well, the Jews would have often gone to the temple of Athena and eventually lost their faith in the one God and be associated with gods who did terrible things. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the prohibition against pork and the prohibitions, uh, the, the seemingly meaningless prohibitions were very important in creating a people who understood that religion wasn't just about getting the gods to do what you want and cursing your enemy. Uh, you know, religion in the ancient world was kind of a practical voodoo. Uh, no, that it was about goodness and morality and uh, and and uh, uh, generosity. That the concept it took the Lord all those years and much law to create a concept of a moral religion. Uh, and religion was was not at all what we think it was. Though sometimes people still react to to Christian religion that way. You know, if I light enough candles, God's going to give me what I want. Doesn't work that way. So God has the hardest time convincing us that the sacrifice pleasing to him is a sacrifice full of morality and goodness. So I hope that helps. All right. Thanks, Joe, and thanks for listening. God bless. And Galena is a lovely town. I know it well. Let's go to uh, uh, Richard from Fort Worth, Texas. Richard, are you with us? Yes, I am, Father. Uh, I missed it down in Waco. I didn't get a chance to get down there. Oh, man, that was fun. That was fun. I did so enjoy Red Sea Radio and the folks there. But go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my question for you is today. uh, My stepdaughter, who is uh, uh, an adult, she uh, started uh, selling um, uh, crystals Yes. uh, on the side and ended up uh, eventually uh, quitting her job. Her husband quit her job, uh, his job. And uh, they formed this company, and they have a storefront, and they're mm-hmm. getting ready to have a grand opening. But I also found out they, they're selling these uh, crystals, and they're selling uh, tarot cards, of all things. Is, is this so, an occult uh, store? Like, uh, you know, you know, they call—I'm not sure. You know, uh, that, I'm unfamiliar with the whole situation, to be honest with you, Father. And um, But my, my question is— uh, they're having a grand opening. Um, mm-hmm. Would that be okay to go to their grand no, opening? No, not at all. Not if they're selling crystals and tarot cards. Crystals are nonsense. Tarot cards are very dangerous. Uh, um, you know that 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 uh, uh, you know. I just and this is going to cause difficulty in your family, difficulty with your wife. It's going to be, but there are just some some places I can go this far and no farther. That that. Mm-hmm. That when you when you use something like Ouija boards, tarot cards, anything that that's trying to prophesy the future that way, you are committing original sin. This sounds funny, but what was the sin of Adam mm-hmm. and Eve? If you read in the scriptures, she looked at the fruit of the tree and saw that it was it was good for food and for the gaining of knowledge. To want to know more than God is pleased to tell you especially in an occult way, is the sin of Adam and Eve. And it is intensely dangerous. You know, and there's always a little truth in the lies of the devil. And that's how he he suckers you in. Uh, I have known people, especially one of the worst things you can do is Ouija boards. They're they're just evil. But tarot cards are the same spirit. I want to know something God has not been pleased to tell me. And usually they're hokum. But every once in a while— they're the real thing, and they're dangerous. So you would say, when they say, why, why, why won't you come to the thing? Because I'm scared. 
Don't say, you're being wrong, it's evil. Don't say that, I'm just too scared to go. What do you mean you're too scared? Yeah, I know a priest who knows exorcists, and that stuff is really dangerous. I'm so scared. Be scared. Don't be angry. Mm -hmm. Be scared. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll get them thinking. And you should be scared of that stuff. I'm scared of it. Um, uh, well, you know. I, heard you just, I heard you discuss, you know, the tarot cards and stuff like that. I'm unfamiliar with the, uh, the um, crystals. However, um, yeah, the tarot cards is very scary to me. Yeah, as they're well. scary. Just, and, and let that be your tech. Why aren't you coming to the grand opening? Because I'm terrified. You guys are in real danger. <laughs> I don't even like roller coaster rides. Why would I want to go to some place where, where you've got tarot cards? What do you mean tarot cards? Yeah, they're they're dangerous. They're dangerous. Uh, yeah, I I can't really even talk to them about it. You know, I I never tried to discuss it with them because they walked away from the faith. Sure, uh, they didn't get married in, in the Catholic yeah, faith. Sure. And don't talk to them they about have totally it. Totally different beliefs than what I yeah, brought. Yeah, don't, don't talk to them about it. With the family, you know? Yeah, don't talk to them about it. Just just say, you know, I'd love to come, but it's just too scary. They will wonder why, and maybe they'll investigate it. Yeah, so you know, the devil okay. goes about like a roaring lion. Be scared. Don't be angry. Don't be <laughs> critical. Don't be condemnatory. You love them, and uh, uh, you respect them, even though they're not respecting the faith in which they were raised. But be scared. I'm scared. I'm not going because I'm scared. Oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Oh, yes, there is. I'm not going. Well, what do you mean? I, I don't want to talk about it. You can even say that. I don't want to talk about it. It's it's up to you. I, I, I just, you know, I'll respect you. You, you. you let me be scared. That will make them think, which is a wonderful thing to do to someone. All right. God bless. Is that, well, is that, you, Father, where, so is, where is the, it's in Fort Worth down there, huh? You got a great bishop, Bishop Olson. Yeah, well, Smart cookie. Oh, it's so wonderful. He he, is. Uh, he married me and my wife, and he was a priest at St. Peter's there in White Settlement, which is a suburb of uh, Fort Worth. And I uh, baptized uh, my stepdaughter and my uh, son, so that was great stuff. Yeah, he's he's great, he's great people. He's great people. So yeah. uh, I'm very fond of him. All right, well, God bless, and thanks for calling in, Richard. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Hang tough. God bless. Let us go to Dean from Cape Coral, Florida. Dean, Hello, what can brother. I do for you? Hello, what can I do for you? Oh, you're someplace I warm. Keeps, I got one that keeps me up at, up at night. Oh dear. I'm a I'm a cradle 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 Catholic. Mm -hmm. I believe in transubstantiation, the Apostles' Creed, the whole thing. But I can't help but believe that if I were to meet Christ face to face, like like uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, or doubting Thomas putting his hand into his side, that it would change me so profoundly that I would crawl on my knees to receive the Eucharist. But why don't I have that kind of faith? without meeting them face-to-face -face like that. You know, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I had a friend in seminary who was trying to decide whether or not to become a priest. Um, and uh, he eventually did not. He, he, he married a wonderful woman. Um, but uh, he's walking around a path. It was called the rosary path. It was the path we were supposed to say the rosary on. I don't know that many guys did back then. But um, uh, the uh, he's walking around. He's looking down, and he looked up, and... He, there was the Lord standing in front of him, and he, he went. He hit his eyes and said, Lord, don't do that. You scare me. And, of course, the vision was gone. But um, it didn't change his life greatly. And, you know, he left the seminary, and a great guy. Uh, uh, and I'm, I believe, I haven't kept up with him, but I believe he's continued in the faith. But it, it was what he needed at the moment. And I think that, that we think that that would change our life vastly, and it may or it may not. You know, it, 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 it may not. In fact, is Jesus talked about those who would believe without seeing. And uh, 
You know, you trust God in that. I, 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 I would love to have the vision of the Lord, and I, you know, I've never had a vision. I, I've heard words from the Lord, but never had a vision. And I think with the Eucharist, uh, you know, you are seeing Jesus. You're seeing God face to face when you look at the Eucharistic host. And uh, I think that that you want to focus on it. There is a wonderful, wonderful short film called uh, "The Veil Removed" on YouTube. Now you got to be careful because sometimes if you punch it in wrong, strange things will come up. But uh, "The Veil Removed" the movie, I think it's called on YouTube, and uh, it's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, movie about what really is going on at Mass. And you might want to watch that. But you know, the assumption that it would—you know—I've known people who said if I only saw one miracle, it would change my life. Didn't change their life. It just hardened their resolve to say no. There were no miracles. Now, I hear music in my head, and that means Drew is coming up. Drew is not like that. Drew knows from miracles, and they have strengthened not only his faith, but the faith of his listeners. And uh, you got to listen in because, well, Drew, he'll pray with you. And that's how you encounter a real miracle. <laughs> 